Many consider June 6, 1944 to be the most important day of the 20th century. Yesterday, as you probably know, was the 71st anniversary of the Allied landing in northern France to destroy Nazi Germany. And according to Baylor professor David Smith, the Allies were divided over the best strategy to take to defeat Germany. The British, led by Churchill, preferred an invasion from the south of Europe, from North Africa, up through Sicily, Italy, the Italian Alps, and finally Germany. But the Americans, led by Eisenhower, favored the beach landing at Normandy. Of course, Eisenhower won the argument. And so perhaps it's not an exaggeration to say, had June 6th not go our way, Nazi flags might be flying over the White House today. Now, can you imagine overhearing the strategy discussions in the days and hours leading up to the invasion at Normandy. I mean, can you imagine listening in as Churchill and Eisenhower and others strategized on how to defeat the greatest enemy to humanity in the modern era? Their conclusions shaped the course of world history. So what if you could have been there and listened in on those conversations? That would have been an amazing thing. Well, there is another battle that took place, another greatest day in history, though not the greatest day of any one century, but the greatest day of all centuries. Like D-Day, this battle required leadership and a strategy, but unlike D-Day, we know exactly what happened the hours before. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 17. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that chapter on page 903. In this chapter, we actually get to listen in on a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. Really, it's Jesus' prayer. It's a one-way conversation. But we get to listen in on this, on this prayer uttered by the Son to the Father before the greatest day in all of history. We may never know when, what went through the minds of Roosevelt and Eisenhower and Churchill on those days and hours leading up to D-Day, but we actually do know what was going through the mind of Jesus as he prepared himself to go to the cross. How do we know? Because we have by the Spirit recorded for us Jesus' prayer. In most of our Bibles, it's referred to as the high priestly prayer. It's simply the prayer of Jesus where he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and as we'll see in a few weeks, he even prays for us. He prays aloud. He prays in public. Right? That's why we have the prayer today. The disciples were over-listening, and we have these words to this prayer in our Bibles for us. Now, remember why the Gospel of John was written. John actually tells us at the very end of the book why it was written, chapter 20, verse 31. He said, these words were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it's in our very prayer today that we've got Jesus effectively praying for our eternal life. So the Spirit guaranteed that we would have this prayer so that God would use these words to lead those of you who have never submitted to Christ to do that. And if you are here and you are a Christian, well, these words are here so that you might be competent and equipped for every good work. This morning, we want to cover just the first five verses of this prayer. But let me begin reading in John chapter 6, verse 32, where Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so the prayer begins. This morning I have four points. First, God is worthy of infinite glory. God is worthy of infinite glory. These verses, as you can probably tell, are all about God's glory. Jesus prays for glory. He says when he is glorified, the Father will be glorified too, verse 1. Jesus says he has glorified the Father, verse 4. Jesus prays that he will once again share in the eternal glory of the Father, verse 5. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, that word glory in Hebrew is kavod, and it means literally heavy or weighty. So in Exodus 24, when Moses writes, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people, what he's saying is that when the glory of the Lord appeared, the weight of God appeared to the people. In other words, God is weighty. He's heavy. He's substantial. He's not to be trifled with. He is a serious God, a holy God, worthy of respect and honor and majesty and praise. And, and so we say worthy of, of glory. So if the Lord showed up visibly right now, uh, our first inclination would not to get up out of our seats and give him a high five, like glad to see you, but rather to, to bow down and humble ourselves before the Lord of glory. Now, when we gather together in light of this, when we gather together as the people of God, we need to remember that God is glorious. Now, that does not mean we have to be uptight, right? We can raise our hands. Right? You can quote me on that. You are free to raise your hands, right? We can look up to heaven and smile. How did Jesus pray? He looked up to heaven. You know, in our culture, a little weird. You can do that. Keep your eyes open. Look up to heaven. That's okay. No, no problem with that. Uh, you can sway while we sing, right? That's typically what I do. Don't look at me when I'm singing, you know. You can do that. It really, it's not about what you're doing with your body. It's not about what's happening on the outside that matters, but let's remember that we gather together in the name of a holy, infinitely glorious God. And we are here together to do serious, glorious soul business. We've got a word to hear. And we've got a Savior to praise. We are gathered together to worship a glorious God. And we can't take any of it lightly. Regardless of what you do with your bodies, we can't take any of it lightly. Now, by the way, God does not need us to be glorified. It is not our praise that makes God glorious. It's not as if God was sort of okay, and then suddenly we were made to give him attention, and all of a sudden he's glorious. Well, no, that's not true at all. Look at verse 5, the end of our passage. Jesus prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, before the world existed, there was Father and Son, and Jesus doesn't mention it here, but there was also Spirit, and they were together enjoying perfect fellowship. The Son has always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father. The Spirit has always been the Spirit. And none of them were lonely or discouraged or anxious or afraid. They weren't biting their fingernails just wondering when we were going to be created so that they would have some company. No, the triune God has always enjoyed his own company. Words fail to describe what exactly is going on before any of us were created, and God simply is the great I am. I will be who I will be, says the Lord to Moses. The triune God enjoyed his own company. 
And perhaps we could put it like this. God is a spring that never stops bubbling water and he drinks from the fountain of his own love. God is a tree that never stops bearing fruit and he eats from the tree of his own holiness. God is the sun shooting warm rays and he warms himself in the light of his own truth. I don't know exactly how you would put it, guys. I just know that God was there, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they were glorious. And so this is a tiny, 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 tiny window into the infinite and never-ending glory of God. And so I would ask you, in light of that, like, what do you find glorious? You know, a sunset at the beach? I mean, just let's be honest. I know the right answer is, Aaron, I find the triune God glorious. Okay, me too. But when you first hear that word, I mean, what are you thinking about? Well, the sunset at the beach, right? That's beautiful, glorious, the, the night sky lit up by the stars, right? The, the human body, an amazing thing. An ancient cave full of silver and gold and rubies and diamonds. Uh, well, maybe, maybe something a little more contemporary, maybe the iPhone. I mean, technology is amazing. The MRI, right? These are, these are wonderful things. But, but Jesus is saying there is a glory that existed long before the iPhone and long before the, the mountain and long before the body and long even before the stars. It is the glory of a perfect God who exists in perfect peace and expresses perfect love. And Jesus prays, God, I, I want to be back in that glory. A couple of observations before we move on. One, if Jesus can share in the glory of the Father, well, then Jesus must be God. Right, Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8, this is what God says. He says, I am the Lord. Right? I am the Lord. That is my name. Right? This is God talking through Jeremiah, through Isaiah. I am the Lord. Right? That is my name. My glory I give no other. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give no other, give to no other. And so what God is saying is, I am a jealous God. I don't want anything or anyone to receive the glory that I'm due because I am the Lord. I'm not going to share it, he says, with idols. That's kind of the point of what's going on in Isaiah 42. I'm not going to share it with these, these silly statues. I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no one else. Therefore, God is not pleased when Kim Jong-un accepts the worship of citizens in North Korea, right? That doesn't please the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give no other, right? God is therefore not pleased when we worship anything else other than him. And yet, here you have Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He prays, Father, glorify me. He says, Father, I want to be back in the glory that I had with you in the beginning before the world was ever created. So Jesus is praying for glory. Why? Because he's God. And so John presents us with a divine Savior. It's the first observation. It's to be very clear. Again and again in the Bible, Jesus is presented not just as a rabbi. He is presented as God. Another observation, really by way of application, Give God the glory he deserves. Give God the glory that he deserves. There's a poem that I read uh, a number of years ago, and it's got a line. It has a line uh, like this. He says in the poem, I could not get to Jesus for the glory of her hair. I could not get to Jesus for the glory of her hair. Now, guys, do you know what I'm talking about? None of the guys want to nod their heads yes, right? A man can be so distracted by the sight of a woman that it is as if that man replaces God with that woman. All the attention and all the affection and all the adoration that God so rightly deserves is basically handed over to the picture or even the thought of a woman, her, her image, her figure has taken the place of 
God in his life, right? That's, that's why we talk about the, the evil of, of pornography, because what's going on is not just images on a screen, but it's human hearts that are placing their affection and their adoration in a place that, number one, can't handle it, and number two, isn't where it ought to be, because our attention and our adoration and our affection they belong to the Lord. He is the Lord. That is his name. He will give, not give his glory to another. So this is what we call idolatry, right? I cannot get to Jesus for the glory of her hair. I'm making an idol out of the woman. So, so guys, you, you know what I'm talking about. But what about all of us? Right? For all of us, what makes it hard for you to go to Jesus? I cannot get to Jesus for the glory of fill in the blank, right? What is it? How would you fill in that blank in your own life? I cannot get to Jesus for the glory of that car. I cannot get to Jesus for the glory of my job. I cannot get to Jesus for the glory of my safety, of my security, of my, I mean, just fill in the blank. Where are you, right? That is where we need to be wrestling with whatever it is that is tempting us away from giving God the glory that is his due. However you answered, right, that's where you struggle. God alone is worthy of infinite glory. Jesus makes that clear in his prayer. All right, second point. Sin is seeking personal glory. Sin is seeking glory for yourself. Now, our sin is really the setting or the backdrop of Jesus' prayer. That's why I wanted to begin in verse 32, where Jesus says in chapter 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. So Jesus knows that sin has poisoned the hearts of his disciples such that the disciples aren't going to follow Jesus. They're not going to stick around with Jesus. When he goes to the cross, they're going to scatter away. They're going to leave him alone. Now, why is this? I think Jesus answers this question in John chapter 12, verse 43. It's actually a summary that, that John gives us explaining why so many people just couldn't quite get on board the Jesus train, right? What was going on? Jesus has been preaching and preaching. He's been performing miracles and miracles. Uh, but opposition has been growing. You know, Pharisees who wanted the respect that Jesus is getting have been basically throwing out landmines, really warning people that if they follow Jesus, they're going to be booted out of the synagogue. So all this is going on. People are attracted to Jesus. They think he's pretty neat. They think he's pretty special, right? They are uh, they're intrigued but they're not quite ready to actually follow him, like the disciples in John 16. They're not quite ready to give up everything and to follow him. And, and John gives us the reason why in verse 43. And I think that, that John's answer applies to the disciples and the rest of the gospel, and it really applies to, to anyone who would, who would see something of the Lord and yet not, not give himself or not give herself to the Lord. Verse 43 for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, they'd rather, they'd rather get praise and glory from man than, than give praise and glory to God. Because the only glory, in a sense, that, that's worth having is a glory that we get as people made in the image of God, giving God the glory that he deserves. But, but John is saying that these people, they, they, they want praise and glory. They don't want to give praise and glory to God because if, give, if they give praise and glory to Jesus, what's going to happen is they're going to suffer. And so I guess you could say they cannot get to Jesus for the glory of their glory. Think of life as a game of Pac-Man. That sentence may never have been uttered in a church before. Those little dots are pieces of glory, right? The glory that God deserves. And we do all we can to gobble up as much glory as we can for ourselves. We gobble up glory at work when we ignore our colleague 
because he spoke out against our proposal. We gobble up glory in our marriage when we won't forgive our spouse until our spouse forgives me. Kids, you gobble up glory when you get mad at your mom and dad when they won't let you do what you want to do. Our hearts gobble up glory whenever we grow resentful towards those who receive the praise and glory that we want, right? Or when we're bitter towards God because God hasn't given us the life that we think we deserve, we gobble up glory whenever we try to live life our own way without submitting to the commands of Christ that he's revealed to us in his word. We are glory gobblers. We have rebelled against God who made us to seek glory from him and in him and through him. So one day we'll stand before Jesus and give an account for our glory gobbling. Look at the end of John chapter 17, verse 2. The end of verse 2. Jesus is praying and he's, he's praying about what the Father did and he says that the Father has given him authority over all flesh. Do you see that? that? That means Jesus has authority over every single person who has ever lived and ever will live. Jesus has authority over all flesh, and that means Jesus is king, and that means that we are accountable to him. So we have sinned against him by gobbling up glory for ourselves instead of giving him the glory that's his due. And as a result of that, we deserve everlasting punishment. And so you're left with that going, well, I see verse 32 that, you know, these disciples abandoned Jesus, and boy, they, know, they knew him better than, than anyone. And I see in chapter 17, verse 2, that Jesus has authority over everyone. Jesus is the king. We're accountable to him. Wow, I need help. That's where our hearts should be. Sin is seeking personal glory. All right, that takes us to the next point, number three. Christ is revealed in the hour of of glory. Christ is revealed in the hour of glory. Our help, our salvation comes from Christ. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus mentions the hour Right there, Father, the hour has come. Now, this hour is uh, a word that Jesus uses throughout John. But as you get towards the end of his ministry, it's used again and again and again. Earlier in John, it's an hour that's coming. But by John 16 and by John 17, it's an hour that has come. It's arrived. This is the hour of the climax of his ministry. It's the moment of his death and of his resurrection. It's the time appointed by God the Father before the foundation of the world for a sinless Savior to die for the sins of his people and rise for their salvation. This is the hour that Jesus paid for the sins of the people God gave him with his own blood. That's the hour, the climax of Jesus' ministry. So I want to say three things about this hour. A lot of things could be said. But I want to say three things about this hour that I think are hugely important. So first, this hour is a reason to pray. This hour is a reason to pray. Jesus is about to enter the most traumatic time of his life, right? He's about to feel the whip on his back, the thorns on his head, the nails in his hands. I mean, he is entering a season where he is actually going to experience separation from the one he loves the most, from God his Father. He's going to drown in the cup of God's wrath. I mean, this is what's going to happen on this hour. And so, quite literally, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, what does Jesus do? He prays. So I would just say, brothers and sisters, what is worrying you today? You know, what's on your mind? What has you anxious or nervous or unsettled, maybe even depressed or disturbed, before the worst day of his life, Jesus prayed. Well, how much more should we pray? The hour is a reason to pray. 
Let me say another thing about this hour. Number two, the hour is certain. The hour is certain. Look again at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, past tense, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So this work includes all of Jesus' teaching, right? all of his healing, all of the exercising of demons. I mean, all the things that Jesus did leading up to this prayer. But this work that Jesus accomplished is also referring to the work that took place after Jesus' prayer. It's also referring to his work on the cross. Jesus refers to it as a work accomplished, past tense, as if it already happened. Now, Jesus spoke this way quite a bit. Look back up at John 16, 33. He says, take heart. I have overcome, past tense, the world. Well, when did Jesus overcome the world? Well, he overcame the world through his death and resurrection, right? When he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead to prove that everything he said was true and to prove that he has the authority to conquer sin and death, right? That's when he overcame the world. And yet when he talks to the disciples, he tells them, take heart. I've overcome the world as if it's already happened. And then when he's praying to God the Father, he says, Father, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So, in other words, the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection is so certain it is so certainly going to happen that Jesus can speak of it as if it has already happened, hence the past tense. Nothing can stop the saving work of Christ. Now, the day before D-Day, Eisenhower did not have such certainty. Eisenhower wondered whether, in fact, this Normandy invasion would work. How do we know that? Did I have access into Eisenhower's thoughts? Well, no. But according to the historian that I mentioned before, Eisenhower on June 5th, uh, before D-Day, uh, actually scribbled a note on a piece of paper. And on that note, he wrote, our landings in Normandy have failed. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. What, is, what, what was Eisenhower doing? I mean, he was, he was preparing for the worst, right? It's like when you've got a championship game and you've got a company that makes the hats and the T-shirts, right? They have two sets of boxes, right? One for the champ, well, they're both for the champion, but they don't know who the champion's going to be. So what do they do? Well, they print championship T-shirts for both teams. And, you know, I don't know what they do. I'm sure they burn the T-shirts that don't get used. But the point is we don't know the future. Eisenhower didn't know the future, Right? So he prepared, he prepared for the worst. Right? But Jesus, not like Eisenhower, you know, so certain of Calvary that he can pray as if the cross and resurrection had already happened. And that's what's going on there in verse 4. Now, a couple of things about that that are really interesting. Number one, if you've been tracking through John 14 to 16, I think one of the verses that have really stood out as Almost the most troublesome are verses like John 16, 24, when he says, you know, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And, and two other times in John 14 to 16, Jesus has that same exhortation to disciples, you know, ask the Father, he'll give anything you ask to you. Ask the Father, he'll give anything you ask to you. And I think most of us read that and go, okay, God, I can read. I mean, I get it. But the fact of the matter is, I ask an awful lot, and I don't get what I ask for. You know, I, I pray that, you know, my house would sell, and it doesn't sell. I, I pray that my cancer would go away, and it, it doesn't go away. I, I pray, and, I, and Lord, I know, you know, not my will, but your will be done. But you're the one who said, ask and you will receive. And I don't know, it can sort of, not, for some of us, just kind of nod us up on the inside. Like, what's going on here? And I think it really is God's kindness that right after we are blown away, ask and you will receive, ask and you will receive, ask and you will receive, we're given this, this model of prayer where Jesus prays for something that he knows is going to happen, and yet he's praying for it. The hour has come. You know, I'm going to the cross. 
I'll talk about that in a moment. But he knows what's going to happen. It's certain. And what does he do? He prays for it. And it seems to me that's instructive in how we pray, right? We should spend a lot of time praying for things that we know are going to happen. So how does Revelation end? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord Jesus, would you come again? This world is full of just so much filth and so much sin. And I see it in my own heart. I see it. Lord Jesus, would you come? Well, is he going to come? Well, I mean, of course he's going to come, right? I mean, <laughs> kind of part of Christianity. Jesus is coming back. And yet we pray for it. You know, Lord, would you preserve my faith? Is Jesus going to preserve your faith? Well, absolutely. You know, Christian, he's going to preserve your faith. But should you pray for that? Absolutely. And he's going to grant you that. Right, Lord, preserve my faith. Don't let me fall away. You know, don't let me, don't let me run for my marriage. Don't let, me, don't let me run into sin. Lord, preserve my faith. Jesus prays for things that he's certain about. And I think so should we. So I think that's a helpful way to understand some of those thorny passages on prayer in John 14 to 16. doesn't mean you shouldn't pray, God, take away the cancer, right? But anytime you pray that, Lord, not my will, but your will, your will be done. Another, another thing by way of application. The hour is certain, right? I think this should comfort us. The promises of God, in this case, the certainty of the hour of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, right? The promises of God are more reliable than steel is strong, the hour is certain because God is faithful. You can trust him. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the beginning from the end. He, I love the picture of like God holding the galaxies in his hand, right, because he's so big. But apparently God doesn't just hold the galaxies in his hand, but he holds the seconds in his hand. Like all of time is in his hand. God is sovereign over all of space and he's sovereign all, all over all of time and over the foundation of the world. God had ordained this hour to come for the salvation of people who would have rebelled against him. And so God is so reliable and so trustworthy. And so for those of you wondering if God is in the midst of your suffering, where do you go but to the promise of God in Romans 8, 28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that's amazing. You know, the hour is certain. God is faithful. God is with you in suffering. For those wondering if God is in the midst of temptation, we have 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide you a way of escape so that you may stand up under it. For those of you wondering, is God really in the middle of evil and injustice? We have 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Yes, one day God is going to expose all the evil and injustice for what it is. God is faithful and he's going to do it. The hour is, is certain. And so we learn the hour is a reason to pray. The hour is certain. A third, a third observation about the hour. Third, the hour is for God's glory. The hour is for God's glory. All right, now if I've lost you, um, can I have you back? Because this is kind of the heart of the passage, all right? You don't have to admit that I lost you, you know. You have to show that physically. Just come back. All right, God is glorified in who he is. This is true. But God is also glorified in what he does. It's not that God can make himself more glorious, but through his work, he can demonstrate or show or reveal his glory, and that's a big deal. And so when Jesus prays, the hour has come, glorify your son. What he means is, Father, I am about to go to the cross to die for the sins of all you've given me. Right? I want the world to see my glory in this. Father, glorify your son. I want the world to see my glory as I submit to your command. So notice that Jesus reveals his glory by giving up his glory. I don't want us to miss that. Father, you know, glorify me as I, as I give up, in a sense, my glory and suffer the death of a criminal on a cross. 
the most glorious thing that Jesus ever did was relinquishing the right to glory that he so deserved. He did it certainly in the incarnation, but we also see that he did it at the cross. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus is glorified as the one who so perfectly obeyed his Father. This is the heart of the gospel. A Savior who gave up what he deserved so that we could gain what we don't deserve. Now, when Jesus prays that the Son may glorify you, right? So the prayer is, Father, glorify the Son, and here's why, so that I may glorify you. What he means is, Father, my death is part of your great plan, right? This is your strategy. Now, this is Jesus speaking as the Son. Jesus is God. It's their strategy. But there's different roles in the Trinity, and and, and so Jesus is, is acknowledging this is the plan of God. This is your great plan. You know, I'm doing it out of obedience to you. I'm doing it out of love for you. So, Father, I'm going to the cross because you were great. So as I go to the cross, I'm doing this so that you'd be glorified, so that the world would know that your plan of redemption is awesome. Father, I do this to glorify you. Jesus glorified the Father by obeying him. Just a, just a quick bit of application. I mean, do you want to glorify God with your life? Do you want to glorify God with your life? Yes, right? Yes, I want to glorify God with your life. Uh, take a note out of Jesus' playbook. Obey him. God is glorified as we obey him. So through the work of the cross, the glory of God is revealed. Let's think about this for a moment. If you put Van Gogh's painting, Starry Night, in a dusty attic, it would still be glorious, right? You can, take, you can take Starry Night or take whatever masterpiece that comes to your mind. You can put that masterpiece, you know, locked up under a, under a drape in a dusty attic, and it is still glorious. A masterpiece hidden is still a masterpiece. But when the masterpiece is revealed, it is glorified. Hanging starry night where it can be admired and appreciated, right? Like in my living room, you know, I'd like starry night in my living room where it can be admired and appreciated, or better yet, in a museum, right? Is a way of bringing glory to that beautiful painting. And, and so it is with Jesus. You know, Jesus is glorious, period, right? He's the Son of God. He's the one with authority over all flesh. He's the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. Right? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? He is who he is. He is glorious. But before the hour of glory, Jesus is like a masterpiece hidden in the attic. But when he goes to the cross and when he lies in the tomb and when he rises from the dead and when he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, millions and millions and millions and millions will finally see him for who he is. His glory will be revealed. We will see the Lamb of God. And it's with all this in mind that Jesus confidently prays, Father, glorify your Son and reveal me to the world. You know, let me do the work that you, you brought me here to do, that I may glorify you. And so this is why I say that Christ is revealed in the hour of glory. And let me remind you of where we've been. God is worthy of infinite glory. Sin is seeking personal glory. Number three, Christ is revealed in the hour of glory, right, in the hour of glory, in the hour of the cross and the resurrection, and then him ascending to the right hand of God. And what happened? But the world, the whole world gets to see Christ for who he is. Amazing. And fourth and finally, eternal life is knowing the God of glory. Eternal life is knowing the God of glory. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus prayed these words for us, that we might have eternal life. 
And what is eternal life? Knowing God. Now, I want to be clear here. Eternal life is a gift. That's the point of verse 2. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life to all whom the Father gives him. That's another way of saying that we're saved by grace. God graciously scoops up out of the mass of humanity millions and millions of millions, and the Father gives them to the Son, and the, Father, and the Son gives them the gift of eternal life, right? That is, that is grace. A gift isn't something that you earn. It's something you receive. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? Eternal life is a gift. But what does it look like to have eternal life? Like, Aaron, you're, you're all over the map here, right? Okay, God is glorious. I get that. Thankful for that. You know, Aaron, I'm not glorious. Thanks for the reminder, you know. Okay, the cross is a big deal, Aaron. I see that. Okay, get that. Eternal life through the cross. But, Aaron, at the end of the day, you know, what does it look like to have eternal life? Can, I, I, I want that. I want to have it. I want to know I have it. Now, I, want to be a, I, want, I want the glory of God. What does it look like to have eternal life? And I think that's really the question that Jesus is, is in a sense, answering in his prayer. Right? When he says that eternal life is, is knowing God, God the Father and, and God the Son, really knowing God the Father through God the Son. Right? What, is this, what does it mean to know God? And, and I think it's important for us to remember that it's not like knowing a president. Like, oh, I, I know I know Barack Obama. Well, you know of Barack Obama, right? You don't know him. Or, you know, you know of Tom Brady, right? But you don't, you don't know him, right? You know of Taylor Swift, right? But you don't know her, right? Knowing, knowing someone is different, right? Knowing God is different. It's personal. You know, it's, it's like knowing a true friend. It's like a bride knowing, knowing her husband. This is intimate and personal when... So when, when God gives us life, it's like he's letting us in. And I think we need to be wowed by that. You know, because we're pretty good at not letting people in. Like, you can know me, but only so much. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know me. I'm going to let you know some of my likes and some of my dislikes, but I'm not going to let you know me. But that's pretty scary. And then you need to have God. And what does God do? He says, no, you can, you can know me. You can know me the way a the way a bride knows her husband. That's pretty amazing. God lets us in. And so Jesus is, is in a sense, defining eternal life. Eternal life is a gift, but what does it look like to have eternal life? It's, it's knowing God. Well, that in and of itself is amazing. So what does it look like to know God? And I want us to end here. Just what does it look like to know God? And as I end here going through just three things really quickly, as I go through them, I want you to be thinking, does, does my life look like this? You know, does my life resonate with Jesus' prayer that eternal life is knowing, knowing God? Now, really, with, with John on my mind, I mean, these points I'm getting through throughout all the Bible, but they're really informed, I think, by the major themes that you see in John leading up to Jesus' prayer. What does it look like to know God? Number one, first, you trust Christ. It's about trust. Knowing God is not intellectual assent, right? It's not, um, it's not knowing key doctrines or being able to answer yes when someone asks you, did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? Yes. Well, that isn't knowing God, right? Uh, the devil knows a lot about the Lord, but he doesn't know Christ. Now, many say they believe, but they don't trust. Now, the best explanation is one that I've given you a thousand times, so please email me better explanations. But for now, let's just go back to Blondini, the famous tightrope walker who had the wheelbarrow, and he stood before Niagara Falls, and there was the tightrope across Niagara Falls, and Blondini, the great tightrope walker, stood before a crowd of reporters, and he said to them, hey, do you think I can walk across Niagara Falls pushing a person in the wheelbarrow? And all the reporters say, yes, we do. You're the best. And then Blondini says, okay, which one of you is willing to get into the wheelbarrow? And it's like, you know, all hands down. 
And it's such a helpful illustration because that's what, that's what faith is like, right? Faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. It's not just saying, I think you're great. Like, how many people say, I think you're great? You know, like, tons of people claiming the name of Jesus, saying they think he's great. But how many are actually in the wheelbarrow? Like, entrusting their lives to him. Like, Jesus, I'm going to entrust my life to you. And I know it means I'm going to have to do scary things. Like, give up certain things in my life that I didn't really want to give up. It's going to cause me to start doing things that I don't really want to do. But I want you more than I want my sin. And I want you more than I want my time. And so I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow. And, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to close my eyes for part of it. But I'm going to get in there. I trust you. That's what being a Christian is like. It's, it's trusting the Lord. I mean, how many times do Christians do things that just don't make any sense in the world's eyes because they trust the Lord? You know, where would, where would Jim Elliot, we talked about him in Sunday school class, where would Jim Elliot, that famous missionary, be if he didn't really think that Jesus was worth following, giving up his life, sharing the gospel to a group that had never heard the gospel before? I mean, what's it like for you to really trust the Lord? Like, God, I really believe you've put me in this office to be salt and light. I believe that. I trust you. You know, I trust that you don't just hold the galaxies in your hand, but you hold the seconds. And so I'm going to trust you. You've put me here for a reason. So help me to live for you and to be bold for you. Or God, I trust you. I trust that I'm in this marriage for a reason. And even though this marriage is really hard, and even though I don't want to be here, I'm going to stay, yeah, out of obedience to you. But I'm just going to trust that one day you'll change my heart and you'll make me want to be here. You know, I mean, Christianity makes you do what the world would say are crazy things because by God's grace, we get in the wheelbarrow. So, so God says, you can know me. You can rely upon me. And that's what it means to know, to know the Lord. Second, so you trust Christ. Now, this is related, but I'll put it another way. Second, you find fulfillment in Christ. Another way to put it is Christ satisfies you. So on earth... Jesus performed many miracles, right? Um, he did a lot of amazing things. And people got excited. And you know when people really got excited? It's when he made bread. Right? When Jesus made bread, people followed him. And it's not because the bread was gluten-free. Right? No, they, 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 they liked this fact that there was, this, there was this guy, and he didn't just preach, right? Like he provided lunch. Right, kind of like us. Like, I'm not just preaching, but if you're a visitor, I'm giving you lunch, you know? Well, Jesus did that all the time, like for thousands, right? He preached and then he fed them. And people were blown away by this Savior who gave them bread. And Jesus, as Southerners would say, he had a check in his heart. He knew something was wrong. And so he said to these bread lovers, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. And so Jesus goes on to say, look, and, and by the way, I'm the bread of life. So when he says labor for food that endures to eternal life, he's saying don't go after bread, but go after me. And so I think there can't be anything more important to tell a 21st century Western comfortable world than that you need to stop seeking fulfillment, right, to go back to the earlier part of the sermon, to start sucking up joy Start, stop gobbling up glory in your jobs or your family or reputation. And you, need to, you need to stop looking for affirmation from your friends. And you need to say, wow, I trust you, Jesus. And frankly, you satisfy me. You're totally enough for me. I can lose everything, but I can just say, praise be to God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of Christ. That's what it means to find fulfillment in Christ. So if you, know, if you know God, right, if you have eternal life, which means you know God, that means you trust Christ. It means you find fulfillment in Christ. And third, I'll end here, and it means you pursue the glory of Christ. Right, before Jesus died and rose again, the disciples pursued their own glory. Right, back to John 16, 32. The disciples pursued their own glory glory. They scattered. Peter, given three opportunities to identify with Jesus, and what does he do? He doesn't identify with Jesus. Three times he, he denies Jesus. What was Peter doing? He was going after his own glory. 
What was Peter showing? Peter was showing that he loved his own glory more than he loved the glory of Christ. Now, are we that different? In our fallenness, are we that different? I don't think we are. On D-Day, embedded among the Allies on the beaches of Normandy, there was a journalist by the name of Ernie Pyle. Um, he died uh, about a year later, in, I think, in, in Japan. But he's a very famous war correspondent embedded with the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy. And in the days after the invasion, uh, Pyle was sending back articles about the invasion uh, back to really all, all of the West, but especially to America. But he didn't have a green light to give all the details, right? Because they're in the middle of, of a battle, basically. So he can't, like, say, and these were their strongest troops, and this was their, you know, most well-protected, you know, military unit. He couldn't give the details. So he couldn't really share exactly how they, they won the day. But he, he, he wanted to, and so he wrote down this. He said, before long, it will be permitted to name the units that did it. Like before long, I'm going to be able to tell you the exact units that won this battle at Normandy, you know, this invasion of northern France, which led to the defeat of Nazi Germany, which is why there's not a Nazi flag hanging over the White House. I'm going to tell you the units that did it. In other words, he'll be able to identify them. And then he goes on to write, then you will know to whom the glory should go then you will know to whom the glory should go. I love that. Brothers and sisters, we know who won the battle, right? We, we know to whom the glory should go. And if you really know the Lord, if you really have eternal life, then you will make it your life's ambition to give him credit. You will make it your goal to praise and proclaim and pursue the glory of Christ. And so just by way of reminder, it's why we gather every Sunday to give him the credit that he deserves. Right? It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight, to proclaim his glory. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's why we serve the church, because when we serve the church, we're serving the body of Christ and giving him the glory he deserves. And it's why we sing, to give him the credit that he alone deserves. Pursue his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who strategized for our salvation. And unlike Eisenhower and, and Churchill, there was no disagreement over the plan of our salvation. You agreed that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins, that he would be raised from the dead for our salvation, that the Holy Spirit would come and apply that redemption to our lives as individuals. And Father, even though the, the son wrestled with the pain of going to the cross and in, a, in, his, in his flesh, in one sense, wanting it to be another way, and yet he says he, he willingly laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down on his own accord. And so here we have in history the God-man Jesus Christ putting down glory and pursuing your glory. And Lord, could we be like that? Would we be like that? We pray that your gospel would so change us that we would trust Christ, that we would be fulfilled in Christ, and that we would pursue the glory of Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name.